Oh, good morning, Gateway. My name is John Malella, and I am here to speak to you today. We are finishing a series on the book of Genesis, and I hope you've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed, uh, I was up here a few weeks ago, and I've enjoyed hearing Ed speak about this book. This book is rich. This is a book that's inexhaustible, and we realize we could very easily spend a year talking about Genesis, or at least Ed could, talking about this book. So we're going to cap off today, and we hope to revisit this book in the future and speak more about Genesis. Many of you know that in the next few days, as a country, we will be marking what was probably one of the greatest speeches in American history, the 50th anniversary of I Have a Dream, given by a black preacher named Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. And in this speech... Dr. King lays out his vision for a country in which, as he says in his unimpeachable eloquence, a country in which my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will be judged not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Now, I think it's fair to say, and it's honest to say, that as a nation, we're not quite there yet. We've made progress, but I think it's honest and it's fair to say that in many ways the dream has been deferred. So today we're going to look at a dream that is given to a young man in the Bible named Joseph. And we're going to see what happens when that dream is deferred. And as we read his life, we're going to see our own lives reflected as well as our life as a church. So pray with me before we start. God, once again, I'm just struck with the ridiculousness of just how you've set things up in a way that you want to speak to us through words. And they are the flimsiest things in the universe. And I'm so aware that in my inadequacy that I'm not equal to this, God. And I know that you need to take over, and you need to speak through these words. God, I know what we don't want to happen is, we don't want to walk out of here the same way we walked in. And I know that's our hearts, because you've given us those hearts. I was thinking, Lord, that we are like, we're like cars that have gone too long on bad roads, and we need an alignment. And we ask you, and we give you permission today, to come and do that realignment. Not in our wheels, (laughs) but in our hearts, God. So to that end, I give you an imperfect product. I give you loaves and fishes today. And I pray that you would multiply that among us and that you would feed us. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, Ed spoke last week about Isaac. And he talked about a wonderful picture of Abraham almost sacrificing Isaac in response to God's command. And we're going to skip a little bit. We know Isaac had two sons, Esau and Jacob. And I spoke a little bit about Jacob last summer. We know Jacob was a bit of a charlatan. He was a bit of a shyster. And Jacob actually went out and he had some sons. He had 12 sons. We're going to talk about one of them. His name is Joseph. You need to know a little bit about the sons. Jacob actually had two wives. One was named Leah, and one was named Rachel. 
And if you know the story, Jacob kind of got tricked into marrying Leah. All right, I know that sounds a little bit dicey, but it actually happened. If you want to read about it, it's Genesis 29. So how do you get tricked into marrying somebody? Well, I think the moral of that story is, on your wedding day, go easy on the champagne. Because if you don't, you're liable to wake up next to a surprise. So he gets tricked into marrying Leah, and honestly, he never really cared for the lady. He really didn't, because he always had his eyes on Leah's sister, Rachel. It took him seven years to also marry her. He was crazy about Rachel. Leah, not so much. So as you imagine, when both of them had sons, Leah and Rachel, whose kids are, are, is Jacob going to be crazy about? It's going to be Rachel's. So Rachel has two sons, Benjamin and Joseph. And Jacob is crazy about Joseph. So what does he do? Well, I think, let's back up. It's not uncommon for parents to have favorites. I hate to tell you this, kids. That's not really that uncommon. I mean, some of your kids you just get along with better, right? Just the way you're wired. And what I found is it's really easy to favor a kid who's easy, <laughs> right? Because as your parent, what's your main priority as a parent a lot of times? You just want peace. Isn't that true a lot of times? You know, let's be honest with ourselves. We want peace. I want quiet in my house. I don't want drama. So it's very easy to gravitate toward the kid who is easy and you're drawn to and you have a connection to. But most parents are smart enough not to broadcast this to the world. Well, unfortunately, Jacob didn't get that memo. So what he does is he actually makes Joseph this jacket, okay, the Technicolor dream coat, as it says in the Broadway play, multicolored jacket. So what we have, Jacob's 11 sons over here are dressed in Walmart. And by the way, I'm not knocking Walmart clothes. I'm, as I get older, that seems more and more attractive to me. But they're in Walmart, and then we have Joseph over here. He's dressed in Armani. So what did the brothers, the 11 how did they feel about Joseph? They hated him. They hated him. Dad, what did you expect when you favored this kid? Now, there's more to this. Genesis 37 actually starts off with Joseph. He's in the field with his brothers. They're shepherds. They're doing stuff in the field. He comes back from the field, and he brings a bad report to his father. So, not only is Joseph daddy's favorite, he's also the family tattletale. He's the goody-goody. Joseph begins to have dreams. And after one dream, he wakes up, and he was so excited, he gets his 11 brothers together, and he says, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field, and <laughs> suddenly my sheaf rose up. And while your sheaves gather around mine and bow down to it, isn't that cool? <laughs> I added that part, by the way. So, well, the brothers don't think so. So they say, do you intend to reign over us? Are you actually going to rule us? The Bible says they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Well, then he had another dream. Now, not for nothing, if... I tell you a dream and you react like that. Do you think I'm going to tell you anything I have after that? 
Well, Joseph didn't have that kind of awareness, I guess. So he has another dream, and then he gets his brothers, and he's excited. He goes, listen, I had another dream. And this time, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. Isn't that cool? You know, even his father doesn't like this one. His father heard this, and he said, are you saying you're going to rule over not only your brothers, but your mother and me? So what happens next? The boys are out in the field, the 11, and his father tells Joseph, go find your brothers. They're tending sheep. Uh, They're about four days away in the field and see how they're doing. Now, it seems like a pretty naive thing to do, seeing as that, one, the brothers hate Joseph, and two, you know, a few chapters before, the brothers slaughtered a tribe of people known as the Shechemites. It was something with the sister. She was disrespected, and the brothers went on the warpath. So Jacob should know what the brothers are capable of, but he sends Joseph out, kind of lamb among wolves. And Joseph can't find the brothers, so he actually asks for directions, which should show you he is an extraordinary man to begin with. (laughs) So right there, ladies, he should be up here. He asks for directions. He can't find the brothers. And while he gets directions, going to the brothers, he's a ways off, the brothers see him, and they say, let's kill him. Let's kill him. So he shows up. And the Bible says when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and they threw him into the cistern, which is a well. The cistern was empty and there was no water in it. So Joseph is now stripped. What designated him as set apart, as a sign of favor from his father, he's stripped. And he's sitting there in the well. Well, what happens next? I don't know about you, but uh, you know, any act of attempted murder makes me hungry. So uh, the boys sat down to eat, and they looked up, and they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead, okay, Gentiles, kind of like far, far cousins of these folks. And their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they're on their way to take these down to Egypt. So Judah has an idea, and he says to his brothers, you know, what are we going to gain if we kill our brother? and cover up his blood. Let's do this. Let's make some money out of the deal. Let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our flesh and blood. So the brothers are like, yeah, let's make some money out of this. We don't want this kid around anyway. So they sold him. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver who took him to Egypt. Now, Joseph's older brother, Reuben, had planned that he was going to come back and rescue Joseph, bring him back to the father. Reuben had done something pretty nasty and disrespected his father, and he was going to try to get back into his father's good graces. But he comes back to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there. He tore his clothes, a sign of grief in the ancient Near East. He went back to his brothers and said, the boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? So Joseph, who dreamed of being raised up to rule, instead is brought low as a slave. What happens when a dream gets deferred? Let me back up a second. What do you mean by a dream? You know, a lot of us have dreams, but they're really wishes, aren't they? 
For example, the kids have caught me recently looking at sports cars on the web. I'm getting to that age, you know, it comes in age, a time every man needs sports car. Can I have an amen? All right. Well, there you go. So the kids call me, and I'm looking at, uh, I think it was Corvettes, looking at it on the web. Jason, my youngest, caught me. So my wife, Lisa, said something like, in order for your father to get that, he would have to get rid of all of us. So if you see my family on Fairfax County Parkway holding up a sign, we'll work for food, you will know that I have my Corvette. That's a wish. No, 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 no. Let me back up. That's an example of a wish. You're not going anywhere. Kids, you're not going anywhere. I got too much invested in you. <laughs> but what does it mean to have a dream? Some of you understand this. Maybe most of you. You've had dreams. You've had big dreams. You wanted to have a Christian family. You dreamed of having a Jesus household. Jesus, the head of your house. And all your children. Rock solid in faith. And instead, your children, or at least some of them, don't seem real interested in your Jesus. Or you even have a prodigal in outright rebellion. Maybe it's your marriage. You dreamed of having a Christian marriage because you've seen other people and you know, other spouses and they just, they're all lovey-dovey on each other and they're just tight and that's just not your experience in your marriage. Or you're divorced. Or you had dreams of ministry. Jesus captured you years ago. And you had a vision. You were going to have an impact for him. You were going to strike a blow for Jesus. You were going to touch people, impact them. It hasn't happened. Or you have a chronic illness that just robs your energy to do anything. Your dream has been deferred. Well, what about Gateway? Remember I said I'm going to look at this story through two lenses, our own lives and the life of Gateway as a church. If you've been coming here for a while, you know that this church was founded on a dream, literally, on a dream. Years ago, God spoke to our senior pastor, Ed Allen, and gave him a dream. The Gateway Church was going to be a lighthouse, a church of spiritual impact, they would penetrate the community and be a place of healing. Can we be honest as a church? Can we be honest and say we're not quite there yet? Not saying we're going in the wrong direction. I think we're going in good directions. But can we say that we're not quite there yet? Can we say that our dream has been deferred? So what happens when our dream gets deferred? We have a tendency to wind up where Joseph winds up. He winds up in Potiphar's house. Now, Potiphar is an Egyptian official. Uh, remember Joseph? He's now, uh, basically, he's like a commodity. He's a product, and he gets sold to this Egyptian official named Potiphar. And the writer goes out of his way to tell us that God was with Joseph. God blessed him. Joseph prospered, and so Potiphar's entire household prospered. 
Potiphar's house was a place of success, and because of that, it was dangerous. Now, follow my thought here if you can. I have trouble following my own thoughts sometimes. It was a place of success, but it wasn't the dream. I have no doubt that Joseph could have probably stayed in Potiphar's house the rest of his life because he was the man there. Potiphar put him in charge of the whole household, and he was blessed, and the household prospered. I really think he could have spent his entire, the rest of his life there. But it wasn't the dream. It wasn't the dream. Because Joseph also found out that Potiphar's house was a place of seduction. If you know the story, you know that Potiphar had a wife, and I don't know how to really say it. She was the original desperate housewife. So Joseph, not only blessed in his skills, he was blessed in his looks. Remember, he was Rachel's kid, and Rachel was a stunner. So Joseph also, he had looks. And you picture this guy coming in from the field, you know, jet black hair, and he's all buffed up and looking great. And Potiphar's wife is bored because Potiphar goes away a lot on business, and she's bored, and she has eyes for Joseph, because after all, he's a slave. And you know what? In the ancient Near East, a slave did whatever you, as the master, said to do. So she had eyes for him, and she started to come on to him. Okay? Nothing new under the sun, right? This is right out of HBO. Well, Joseph refuses. He says, I can't do this. I can't do this. He says, with me in charge, you know, my master, Potiphar, he doesn't concern himself with anything in the house. He's entrusted everything to me. No one is greater in this house than I. He has withheld nothing from me except for you, Mrs. Potiphar. By the way, the Bible does not dignify her with a name because this is no lady. And he says, how then can I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? So she spoke to him day after day. Joseph, come on. Day after day, he refused. One day, time runs out. She corners him. She grabs him by his robe, and he runs out. And he leaves the robe in her hand. And she accuses him of rape. And she screams. And Joseph is put into prison. Once again, he is stripped, and he is put into prison. What's our Potiphar's house? What is our Potiphar's house? What is that for us? A place of success where we could very easily spend our lives, but it's not the dream. And it's also a place of seduction where we're in danger of being drawn away from God's plan for us. What is that for us? Well, I think it's pretty obvious. It's our affluent Northern Virginia lives. You know, you're here. You live in this area because you're successful. Do you know why you're successful? Because you're blessed. Because God has blessed you. He's given you talents and gifts. That's, why you're, that's the only reason why you're successful. Because he's blessed you. And how are we seduced? We are seduced into being like everyone else. Joseph could not deny his identity. His identity was not one of a slave. He said, how can I do this to God? His identity was rock solid. I'm one of God's people. Even though I'm far from home and I'm a slave, I am one of God's people. His identity was rock solid. And that needs to be our identity. 
Joseph was careful not to let his blessings lead him into sin. Our gifts and talents, if we misuse them and forget where they're from, can actually lead us into sin. What is Potiphar's house for this church? What is Potiphar's house for Gateway? I think it's at least partly to be content with where we are. I think it's to be content with being another community church. I think it's to be content with being in a place where a lot of churches find themselves where if you you took God out of it, they would still run just as well as before. Programs would go on. Life would go on in the church. If If God extracted himself from the church, life would just go on as usual. I think that's a seduction. The seduction is to become more of a social club rather than what God has called the church to be is a group of revolutionaries. And I think it may also be to rely on our blessings and our gifts that God has given us instead of throwing ourselves at God in desperation, which is what he's looking for. Well, before we see who the dream is really about, and it's, it's about Joseph, but there's more, we'll get there. We have to follow Joseph into jail, and here's what happens. Joseph meets two other cellmates. One is the baker, and one is the cupbearer. I've got to say something about this a little bit. These are positions of trust. These people worked for the pharaoh. It's the way it worked in the ancient Near East. If you wanted to assassinate a king or a pharaoh, you get him through his food. You poison his food. So the people that handled the food were very important. So the cupbearer handled the, the pharaoh's cup, and the baker obviously did the bread stuff. They're in jail. We don't know why, but they're sitting there with Joseph. We don't know what happened. Maybe you know the pharaoh had some heartburn after dinner one day, and he accused these guys, and, well, they're in jail. And they each have a dream. Joseph interprets the dream for them. And he says to the cupbearer, he says, here's what your dream means. In three days, you're, you're getting out of jail. And you're going to be restored to your position. And please, please, tell the pharaoh about me. I don't deserve to be in jail. Tell the pharaoh about me. So the cupbearer is overjoyed. Then the baker's like, well, what about my dream? So Joseph tells him, your dream, you're getting out of here in three days, and you're going to the gallows. Doesn't mince words. So these guys get out of jail, and it happens just as Joseph had said, but the cupbearer forgets him, just forgets about him. So Joseph is still sitting there. He's sitting there. I wonder, Joseph's sitting there in the jail, I wonder if every time he heard the door open, heard the gate open in the corridor, with the cells on both. I wonder if he thought, finally, finally, finally. How long was Joseph in the jail? He was there two more years in the jail. Two more years. Can we say here that the dream is dead? You know, the Bible has absolutely no commentary on this. Just the bare facts. Joseph stayed in jail for two more years. Some of you are in a place like that. Some of you are in a place of it's just dead space. It's just silence. And you're wondering, what is God doing? Remember, Joseph didn't know he was going to be there for two more years. 
It was just day after day after day waiting for the cupbearer to come back with the pharaoh. Hey, he's in jail. He didn't deserve to be there. He didn't know how long he was going to be there. This is a place for some of us where we may be tempted to say, I've had it. I've had it with God. Where is he? I've been trying to do what's right, and this is where I end up? You know, in his book, When God Breaks Your Heart, that's an actual title. I don't know if that's ever going to be a bestseller with that kind of title. Pastor Ed Underwood tells about a time when he's diagnosed with a form of lymphoma. And this form of a disease actually makes your skin come off. And the victims of this disease have an, almost an incurable itch. And they scratch to the point of scarring themselves to try to get rid of the itch. In this book, he talks about a time when the treatments became so brutal and he was so out of hope that he said, I've had it. This is a pastor. He's been in ministry for a couple decades. He actually tells his wife, I am done. I'm not praying. I'm not talking to God. I've had it. And as he says in his own words, he says, even those of us with hearts wholly devoted to God will give up on him when we feel he has given up on us. I just say that again. Even those of us with hearts wholly devoted to God will give up on him when we feel he has given up on us. If that's you, let me encourage you. And let me tell you to encourage yourself. Let me tell you to surround yourselves with people that encourage you. Because what Ed Underwood did, he had to be carried for a while because his wife didn't give up. He had to be carried. And that's not a, nothing to be ashamed of if you're at that point in your faith where you're on empty and you need to be carried. God was with Joseph in prison. God is with you in your prison. Joseph sits in jail for two more years until the Pharaoh starts having dreams. And the Pharaoh has a dream that sounds something like this. He says, I had this dream about some cows. This is like a Chick-fil-A dream. And here's what happened. Seven cows, fat cows, are there, and they get eaten up by seven skinny cows. And it got this other dream, seven wonderfully rich Heads of grain, fat heads of grain getting eaten up by seven skinny ones. So nobody in Pharaoh's court calls his wise man. Nobody can really tell him what they mean. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> the cupbearer remembers. And, and I love his phrase. He goes, oh, now I am reminded of my shortcomings. You know, I work for the government, and <laughs> one of my favorite phrases is, mistakes were made. Right? Gotta love that. Mistakes were made. Yes, mistakes were made. Cupbearer says, Mr. Farrow, sir, there is somebody who I think can interpret these because I knew him when I was in jail a couple years ago. His name is Joseph. So the Pharaoh brings him and says, I've heard you can interpret. Joseph says, I can't, but God can. And he tells him, Pharaoh, this is what's going to happen to you. This is what's going to happen to your wonderful country of Egypt. You're going to have seven years of incredible abundance, and then you're going to have seven years of famine. 
And if you don't appoint the right person to lead us through this process, people are going to die. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there's no one so discerning and wise as you. You, Joseph, you're going to be in charge of my palace. And all my people are to submit to your orders. And I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. It says, Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. Listen to this. It says, he dressed him in robes of fine linen. Joseph has been stripped twice. Stripped of his father's coat, stripped of his own coat. He is now wearing royal robes. He had Joseph ride in a chariot where people shouted, make way! So the land produced abundantly. Seven years go by and famine hits and people are starving, but they are sustained because Joseph's in charge. This guy has administrative skills like you can't believe. He's like a Tim Eagle. He is amazing. The famine spread all over the area, even in Canaan, where Jacob is still there with the 11 brothers. When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, <laughs> gotta love this, why do you keep looking at each other? I've heard there's grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we may live and not die. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to Egypt. Wait, why only 10? Because Jacob refused to let Benjamin go. Remember, Benjamin was, was Rachel's other son. Jacob has not gotten over the fact that he lost Joseph. I am not going to let Benjamin be put in harm's way. He's not leaving the house. He was afraid harm would come to him. So the brothers appear before Joseph in Egypt. They go down, they're going to buy grain, and they don't recognize him. What a scene. Joseph looks out and he sees brothers. And what does he do? He accuses them of being spies. And they say, no, we're not... Sir, Lord, we're not spies. We're brothers. We all have the same dad. But one of us is no more. And our youngest is home. So Joseph says, go get the youngest. And what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to hold one of you hostage. Simeon steps in, gets chosen by Joseph. Go get your youngest. So they go back to their father, Jacob. <laughs> Jacob's like... I'm not letting Benjamin go. He's not going with you back to get more food. But they run out of food. And the ten brothers go back to Joseph. And he appears to trick them. Here's what he does. He gives instructions to the steward of his house. He says, fill these men's sacks with grain as much as you can. I mean, really stuff it in there. The silver that they use to pay for it, put it back in the sack. And I want you to take my cup, my silver cup, and put it in the mouth of the sack of the youngest one. And he did as Joseph said. So morning dawned, and these guys are leaving the palace, and they've got their donkeys loaded with the grain. They had not gone far from the city when Joseph said to his steward, go after these men. When you catch up with them, say to them, why have you repaid good with evil? Isn't this the cup my master uses? Drinks from, this is a wicked thing you've done. What's Joseph doing with these guys? From one perspective, it seems like he's playing them, right? Is it revenge? Is he just messing with them? 
Or is he testing them? Is he testing them to know whether they've changed? But also, is he testing them so that they would know that they have changed? Because isn't it true? We don't know what's in here until it's tested. I think he's testing them. The steward catches up with the brothers, and they swear if anyone has the cup, that he'll be Joseph's slave. So Benjamin, the youngest, throws his sack of grain off the donkey. It hits the ground. What comes out is the cup. The brothers are floored. They can't believe what's happening. And they all go back to Joseph, who tells them, you can go, all of you, but Benjamin, this youngest one, he's going to stay. He's going to be my slave. And then something odd happens that shows you this whole process has been a time of growth. It's been a time of change. Do you remember Judah, who wanted to actually came up with the idea to sell Joseph? Judah steps up, and he pleads for Benjamin. And he tells Joseph, you can't. You can't take him because this is going to kill my father. He didn't think that 20 years ago when he sold one of his father's favorites. But he's thinking it now. He says, you can't do this. Take me instead. He's willing to give himself up. Take me instead. Well, Joseph can't hold back any longer. And he tells him, orders everybody out of the room. He breaks out, tears, (laughs) sobbing. I am Joseph. And he wraps it up with this incredible phrase. He says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Joseph had learned to see throughout all these times in Potiphar's house and in prison that, well, there's human intentions working this, but there's another intention that's superintending on top, and it's God's. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. Joseph was put in charge so that many lives could be saved. And I think here we see what the purpose of the dream is. You know, God's dream for your life is more than just about you. It's for others, too. God's dream for this church is more than just about us. It's more than just about who's in here on a Sunday. It's for others. You know, we live in Joseph's world. We're separated by a few thousand years, but we're in his world. It's a world of famine. It's a world of physical famine, which those of you that did Stop Hunger, you you answered that call to help with that, with the physical famine, to actually see people fed physically. But we are in a type of world where we have spiritual famine. People don't know who God is. People die People die separated from God. And there's a greater Joseph. There's a Joseph that wants to reach these people. There's a Joseph that wants to feed them. There's a Joseph that wants to save these people. And he wants to use us. He wants to use us. The spiritual tattletales. Lack of awareness. We're it. He wants to use us. He wants to work through us. He wants to feed them through us. The greater Joseph, Jesus, who knows what it's like to be abandoned by his 11 brothers, who was stripped of his robe, suffered 
And just as Joseph rose from the prison and was raised to the right hand of Pharaoh, Jesus was also raised from the grave and was given power and authority so that many might be saved. Just as Joseph fed the people with bread, Jesus wants to feed us and through us with himself as the bread of life. And just as Joseph was clothed in royal robes, gave his brothers robes to wear, Jesus gives us his robes, his righteousness, his perfect moral standing before God so we might share in that. How are we going to respond to this? Stand with me, if you will. We're going to do some work with this. We're going to just spend a a few minutes. I want to make some space here. As much as you're able, be honest. Be honest with God. We're going to spend some time in his presence. Not, Not a long time, but we're going to spend some time in his presence. I just want you to bring a few things to God. Interact with him. What's God's dream for your life? Bring that to him. What is his dream for you? What's God's dream for you at this church? What's his dream for you here? Lord, where are we in Potiphar's house? Lord, if we're in the prison, encourage us. Lord, we thank you because we, we just can't, we can't get a handle on your generosity. We, it's, it's hard for us because we're not that kind of people that are usually over-the-top generous, but you are. And Lord, I want to pray right now if, uh, well, for anybody here that's not connected to you, I just pray, Lord, that uh, you'd spark in them and, and open their hearts up to you. And that they would know you, God. I mean, that's life, that they would know you. And I pray for, for those of us that have known you and maybe walked with you for a long time, God, that you would expand our hearts, God, wherever we are, in Potiphar's house or, or prison, or maybe we don't know where we are. Maybe we can't even focus on where we are. That you would be so real in our lives, unmistakable. And that you'd also enable us, empower us, to be what we need to be in this time of famine. In Jesus' name, amen.